and welcome to the ministry of First Reformed Church of Aberdeen, South Dakota. Our worship services are at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. Now we join Pastor Hank Bone as he brings us God's Word. For our Bible reading this morning, we turn to Romans chapter 11. We've been studying this interspersed section of chapters 9 through 11 where the Apostle Paul takes on the question, um, has God rejected the Jews? And we come to chapter 11, and he now is going to bring this argument kind of together. And we'll study this over the next couple of weeks. But let's turn our attention to the reading of God's infallible inspired word. Romans 11, chapter 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But throughout their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is the riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. What will you say then? Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in? Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. But fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell 
severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, how confident can your hope of God's promise of eternal life be? Is there any possibility that God would change his declared will about salvation and walk away from you? Of course, the answer is no. In Romans 11, the Apostle Paul seeks to teach us valuable lessons about the nature of the church and the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to the church of God. The church of God is made up of people that the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ in becoming one who is not only a true and righteous man, but also true God came to die on the cross to redeem those who were chosen, and who the Holy Spirit is then sent to work new spiritual life into those who are chosen through rebirth. This chapter is made up of two sections, verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 36. In the first section that we will consider here this morning, Paul demonstrated that the rejection of the Jews was not total, but rather The Jewish church, the true offspring of Abraham, must be viewed as a remnant and not a national church. In the second section, Paul then asserted that this seeming rejection of the Jews was not final and that the Gentile church should seek a restoration of the Jews as a future important addition to the Christian church. 
But Paul's primary interest for inserting what may be seen may seem like a, a kind of digression from the purpose of his letter is that the church, the Gentile to which he was called, would learn about the nature of the church along with the red flags that come with the church seeing themselves as somehow superior to non-church people, the people of the world. Paul demonstrated through the paradigm of the Jews that the church must resist the temptation to see themselves as exclusive and exclusionary toward those outside the church, as though this was a private club. Moreover, Paul is making clear that God's plan of salvation is not a failed plan, but is doing exactly what God intends it to do over the course of redemptive history. We are nearing the end of that plan, but we are not at the end when Christ's return and the kingdom of heaven will be realized in all of its glory. Paul has been, been working through the, the second great section of the book that's in three parts. And we're at the end of that second part, even as the catechism comes in question 85 to the end. And, and the book is unfolding how God redeemed us from our sins and misery in this second section. And it is provocative to our minds that, that he ended this section by addressing the failure of the Jews as an example of the church of human failure, but then points to a future restoration of the Jews into the church as a demonstration of the faithfulness and forgiving nature of our merciful God. So the, church, the Jewish church at Paul's time was a church of human failure and thus rejected by God. But God says, I'm still faithful to my promise to Abraham. And you should expect later, when the Gentile church comes into its fullness, to see a Jewish migration back into the Christian church. Three points will guide us through verses 1 through 10, which we'll look at this morning, teaching uh, the teaching here that unfolds under the theme that the rejection of the Jews was not total. We'll see that there will be a reserved communion, a remnant church, and a resisted covenant. So first, a reserved communion. We see that in the first four verses. He opens up by, with, these, with this kind of question. I say then, has God cast away his people? And in typical Pauline fashion, he says, certainly not. God's faithful to his promises. God's promises cannot fail. God has not cast away his people. That, that can't happen. So our problem is not that God has changed his mind, but that we haven't understood the mind of God. This is the pressing question that the Apostle Paul may have been faced with over and over. One of the challenges that the evangelist of God has to contend with is 
why go to those people over there with the gospel? Do we actually want them in our church? After all, they're different from us. Jesus had to contend with this very prejudice over and over, and I suspect so did the Apostle Paul whenever he was around his kinfolk, the Jews, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Even as Jesus' disciples scorned him, in a sense, for speaking to the woman in Sychar, the Samaritan woman, So Paul, over and over, was probably scorned for speaking to the Gentiles of God's covenant because that belongs to the Jews. Jesus heard those words, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Gentiles are not God's chosen people is what Paul would hear. The problem of human society has always been plagued by prejudice and racism. In Jesus and Paul's day, there was a a strong attitude that Jews and Gentiles must be kept apart within the church. Original segregation, you might say. Paul at one point had to rebuke the apostle Peter, who got up and, and left the table where they were eating together when fellow Jews came in because Peter did not want to be seen eating with Paul's Gentile companions. It was a sin. It was a sin then, and it would be a sin today. And Paul took him to task for it. Did God cast away the Jews because of their racist attitude toward others? Well, we're living in a culture that would probably say, yeah, definitely, that's the problem. And I think that played a part in their rejection, not for the reasons that our, our cancel culture would say today, But the nation of Israel was to be God's light of grace and mercy to the world. And what did they do with that? They hid it. They hid it. As Jesus illustrated when he said, you don't take a light and hide it under a basket, but you raise it up for everyone to see. And what the Jews were doing was they were hiding it. They didn't want people to see it. The church of God is called to live as a light to those outside the church to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the saving of their souls, to enjoy the same gift that we as church have received. But Paul answers the question of, did God cast away the Jews? With several examples that show that while national Israel had been rejected and dismissed, it was time in redemptive history to come to an end, the Jewish people had not been rejected in total. There were still faithful Jews who believed Jesus was the true Messiah, the Son of Man, the only Savior. In fact, that early church at the time of Paul was still predominated by Jewish people. Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ. Paul used himself as an example, first of all. He declared, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God cast his way as people? Well, who am I? I'm a living example. Paul understood that while God was opening the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles, it was not being shut to the Jews. Whoever called upon the name of the Lord would be saved, even as God had saved him from 
the killing of Christians to be the great evangelist to the world of Jesus, for Jesus Christ. He was a Jew, and God had not rejected but saved him by grace through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul was moved from seeking righteousness by terrorism, by works, by his own efforts, to finding favor with God through grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The second example is that of Elijah, found in 1 Kings 19. It's a favorite story of mine. It's an interesting story. Paul appeals to this as an example that we all need to take heart even as a church today. Things had gotten so bad in Elijah's day that the Jews, as the church, had fully embraced Baal and idolatry as the way to worship God. It was holy against everything that God had commanded and was the ultimate practice of a man imagined will worship, but it was the popular fad of the culture of that day. Elijah, as the prophet, called the people to repentance, preached against idolatry, and even contended against the king and his false prophets on Mount Carmel. What he received for that was persecution, and his life was threatened so that he had to flee for his life. So he runs away. He runs to the hills. He runs back, and he he goes into a cave, and, and there we read in 1 Kings 19 that God comes to him. So Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's all over, God. I'm the only one left. There's no one else. Just take my life. Just get it over with. Kind of a hint of, God, you're so disappointing. Couldn't you have stopped this? Maybe you feel a bit like that as a Christian today in a culture becoming increasingly hostile to those who take their Christian faith seriously enough to say the Bible is the word of God and we all need to believe it. And Father, there's there's lots of people running around claiming to be Christian, but nobody believes your word. Nobody's walking the way you want. Nobody worships the right way. Nobody really believes you. I alone am left. How does God respond? The culture is hostile to us for holding that the Bible is absolute truth. And we see and we look around us and we understand closing in more and more on us that at the heart of cancel culture movement is a rejection of Christianity. But note God's response to Elijah. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, when he says 7,000 men, what he really means is 7,000 families. That's how often they counted. As they, the, the man counted for the wife and the children and everybody else. So, you know, we're talking about a lot more than just 7,000. 7,000 families. I alone am left and there's no one else. Psh, psh, Elijah, wake up. There's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We tend to look at the bad things. We tend to miss 
the good stuff that's going on. God has reserved a people for himself, even when the whole world seems bent on its destruction. What is Paul's point? It is that God has his elect, even if we don't see them. There will always be those who remain faithful in biblical worship and obedience to God. The true church is a reserved communion of the elect of God. Another way that this nature of the church is described is that it is a remnant church, which we see secondly here, a remnant church in verses 5 and 6. We read, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And that distinction between the visible church the one that we see on earth made up of people who profess to be Christians, doing all kinds of different things, must always be distinguished from the invisible church, that one that is the reserved communion by God. The visible church is much larger than the true people of God. That's a principle we've got to get down. The, tr- the true church is, is much smaller than the visible church. The true church exists within the visible church. Out of all the descendants of Abraham, only a small percentage of the the true spiritual seed of Abraham, even in the Old Testament, in Elijah's day, made up the true spiritual seed of Abraham. You have to understand this principle. There are countless numbers of churches, more than we can count. I mean, one of the things I've heard over and over and over again, it seems like every single community people describe it as, yeah, that community, there's so many churches, there's a church on every corner. I think every town I've lived in, I've heard that same statement. Oh, it's a really church town. There's a church on every single corner. Because there's lots of churches. There are lots of churches, more than we can count. If I were to ask you how many churches are there here in Aberdeen, I'd bet there's not a one you could tell me how many there are. There's tons of them. They're all over the place. I can't begin to tell you. But while there are countless numbers of churches, many of those churches are not faithful to God according to his word. Paul reinforces this by reminding you that the Jews are rejected if you go back to Romans 10.3, because they sought to establish their righteousness by their works, by doing it their own way, by integrating in their own ideas. And sadly, that sin has always prevailed in the church through the ages. The Jews were the church, but they pursued God through a man-imagined will worship. Whether it was Baal worship, the culturally cool thing to do at the time, or Pharisaism at the time of Jesus, which was a strict form of legalism, or whether it's wokeism in the church today. They all were rejections of God's identifier of what the true Christian embraces unto eternal life. What sets one into being part of the true church of God And that which is a church that leads one away from the true worship by those reserved of God is what? It is the mark of grace 
It is the mark of grace, the embracing of grace. Why is it important to be reformed? You know, I, I, I'm sure you've probably heard the same thing, and I've had it thrown at me. Oh, you reformed guys, you think you're the only ones. You're the only ones. You think everybody else is lost, and you're the only ones that are saved. You're the only true Christians. No, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. What we do believe, though, is that a true Christian will be a biblical Christian. And what it is to be reformed is to be biblical, to seek to pursue God according to God's will and God's way and God's word. To be reformed is simply another way of describing yourself as one who pursues your faith in God biblically. And grace is the key. Embracing God's grace is the key. Paul made the point emphatically here in verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. The multitude of churches, sadly, in some way or another, and and even in some reformed, quote-unquote, churches, they turn grace into something else. It's no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. There's no way around it. The moment you seek your salvation in any other way than a biblical understanding that true worship is by grace and through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, you have bowed your knee to bow, proverbially speaking. You're pursuing God in some other way. The Jews' rejection of Jesus shows that being a member of the church outwardly does not guarantee you are part of God's people eternally. That brings us to our third point, a resisted covenant. What then, Paul says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. It is curious how Paul found comfort in the doctrine of election. He desired that his kinsfolk by blood would be saved. But he also recognized that they had resisted God's covenant with them by pursuing righteousness outside of God's provision of his son. Salvation was always by the grace of God, but the Jews sought it through the law, through the law of Moses. How did this happen? It was by God's design and intention. We have to understand that it was by God's design and intention. It was to reinforce that salvation is God's choice. There are a lot of professing Christians running around out there that have a problem with that statement. That salvation is according to God's choice. They say, no, God's bound to my choice. God's bound to do what I tell him to do. And that's the problem. That's very problematic. The doctrine of election was a source of comfort in Paul's need to embrace the reality that people he knew were not going to be in heaven with him. We've all struggled with that. That someone we know and we look at them and they don't don't care for the things of God. And, and, and it, it, it is hard and heavy upon our hearts that they're not going to be in heaven. And we pray for them and we desire for God to uh, save them. But nevertheless, 
Our first love, when we become converted, is a love for the glory of God. That God's name would be exalted, even if it would be in my own condemnation. Salvation, that doctrine of election, was a source of comfort in Paul's need to embrace the reality that people he knew were not going to be in heaven. And so his explanation for why the Jews had rejected God's covenant that led to God rejecting them was election and predestination. These are two doctrines that are hated by the unbeliever in the church. And I say that very deliberately, the unbeliever in the church but embraced by those enlivened to trust in the will of God. By turning to election, Paul sets forth for you the teaching of what's known as double predestination. And some Christians are uncomfortable with this, but if you understand that God is absolutely sovereign and the ultimate determiner of everything that comes to pass, then this is not so hard to embrace by faith. If you read the scriptures and you see where God says that he works all things according to his own good pleasure, you can't get around that. It's there. You have to either embrace it or rail against it. It seems that this doctrine creates either one or the other. But God determines both categories of the saved and the lost. And you can't get around that. Not if you are going to be biblical. The key concept, though, is how God does this. It begins by understanding that everyone, after the fall of Adam into sin, is born into this world spiritually dead and under the condemnation of God. From out of this group, this whole group, God determined to save some, a remnant, whom he does through Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. The others, he leaves in their sins so that they are blinded to the true way of salvation through the free grace of God. And so we see in the verses 7 through 10 in a nutshell that God blinds them to the gospel by leaving them in their sin. The Jews who fell resisted the covenant that God made with Abraham because they were not the true elect of God. As a nation, they were. But as individuals, only a remnant of Israel is saved. And that is just as true today. The Christian still receives the gift of eternal life by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, without any contribution by the Christian in obtaining that grace. And thus, it's the free gift of God as a manifestation of the love of God in his desire to have for himself a people to himself. And that's who you are as one who embraces Christ by faith through grace. Amen? Let's pray. Our almighty God and heavenly Father, your thoughts are far beyond our thoughts and your your wisdom is beyond our wisdom. And yet, Father, your truth is plain. Your will is clear. And, Father, your grace is sufficient for our salvation. And for this, we thank you. And, Father, as we look at the world around us, 
we understand that you can at any moment change any one of those hearts. And that we are to be that light that bears upon all of those people. That your salvation might at any moment rain down upon a sinner who needs to be saved by your grace. Father, help us as church to be church, to be those who are thankful in the prosperity we have through Jesus Christ, that in the midst of adversity we might look to you knowing that we are so in your hand that no one can take us from it. That, Father, we are church, more than the visible outward church, but we're part of that. But we are of that church of God that has embraced you by grace through faith, who looks to Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, who sees that in us, in ourselves, there is no goodness, but rather that goodness that you have implanted within us by the working of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, cause that love of God to so overflow our hearts, that we are filled with that joy of knowing that we are yours and you are ours. Hear us now as we praise you've taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.